ditches. The shortcut was often clogged with HGVs saving mileage, taxis avoiding rush-hour snarl-ups on the main roads, and locals who knew how to thread their way through the network of lanes which zigzagged the wetlands, clinging to the floodbanks. The road had been built nearly four hundred years earlier, on clay dredged from the river. Subsidence and slippage had wrecked the original flat surface. While it was straight in a two-dimensional plane, it was anything but in three dimensions. It undulated with an almost hypnotic rhythm, like a Mobius strip. Dryden's ear canals, as prone to flights of fantasy as the rest of him, sent him impossible signals, appearing to indicate that the cab was about to corkscrew like a roller coaster. The cab hit a dip, and Boudica, the greyhound, crouching in the back seat, howled once, then whimpered. Dryden gripped the wheel harder, because ahead he could see a lorry, one of the big agricultural HGVs thundering towards him. It was getting bigger at an alarming rate, which suggested a speed roughly double the maximum allowed. Streamers flew from its stovepipe. Hold on, he said, to wet his mouth. The HGV swept past, the wind nudging the cab another foot towards the edge of the bank. Dryden swerved back to the safety of the white line. Then the wind, which had been a torment that summer, buffeted the cab further away from the water, so that for a moment he thought he was going to put them off the road on the far side, down a twenty-five-foot bank into a field a descent which would have killed them just as surely as plunging into the forty-foot. His passenger rearranged his sixteen-stone carcass in the bucket seat. Humph was the cabbie who usually drove the Capri. Always drove the car. Never left the car, lived in it, really, if the fetid truth were told. But today, just a few miles back, Humford pulled over and announced he couldn't drive on. Stress, he said. You drive? I can't see. He'd waved one of his small, delicate hands in front of his face, as if cleaning an invisible windscreen. It was a big favour to ask. Dryden had not driven for more than a decade since the day he'd pitched his car into a drain just like the forty-foot. The two-door courser had sunk. He'd been pulled to safety by another driver. His wife, Laura, had been trapped on the back seat underwater for nearly an hour, surviving in an air pocket. She'd lived through it, and so had he. But they'd never be the same again, which was why he hadn't driven since— and why she always travelled in the front passenger seat. Hum's mobile buzzed in his lap. He read the text. She's not at school, he said, his high voice furred with fear. Hum's voice was like humph, lighter than you'd expect, tiptoeing out of his small round mouth. The cabbie's eldest daughter, Grace, aged fifteen, was missing. 
The call had come that morning at 7.30am from Humpsek's wife. Grace lived with her mother and stepfather in Witchford, a village on the edge of Ely, in the heart of the Fens. She'd gone to her room on Sunday night before ten o'clock, saying she wanted to revise for an exam in bed. Usually diligent and cheerful, she'd been moody and withdrawn. Her mother had put it down to being a teenager. But at breakfast time she'd found the bed empty, still made up. Grace wasn't at her best friends. She wasn't with neighbours. Her mother rang Humph, who was sleeping in the Capri in a lay-by near Waterbeach, having spent the night ferrying clubbers home from Cambridge. Humph checked his house, a semi on Ely's Jubilee estate, because Grace had her own key. No sign. So he'd rung the police. Grace was level-headed.